Bible says, and Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So here we see persecutions coming down hard on the church. The church is being squeezed out of Jerusalem, and as they're leaving, they're taking the gospel with them. The title of the sermon this evening is this, The Gospel Spreads as the Church Suffers. The Gospel Spreads as the Church Suffers. Let's pray. Lord, help us tonight to glean from your word exactly what you'd have for us. Help us to grow. Lord, incrementally grow at the least, week by week, sermon by sermon, Bible study by Bible study, verse upon verse, line upon line, precept upon precept. Lord, may your word change our hearts. Lord, may it make us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to be Christians who are sincere in our faith. And Lord, help us as we look at a somber passage this evening to make a determination in our heart that we'll serve you no matter the cost. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, the forces opposing the church at Jerusalem began timid and uh, had great, gained great boldness. In Acts chapter 4, they pulled in Peter and John and gave them a verbal warning. In Acts 5, the disciples were beaten and released. In Acts 6, Stephen is arrested. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death. You see this escalating. It goes from a verbal warning to a beating to uh, the arrest of Stephen and now the stoning of one of the church's leaders, the stoning of Stephen. Now in Acts 8, Saul the Pharisee is leading the charge in the persecution of the church. People are being arrested. Fear has gripped, um, fear has gripped much of the church. Some folks are fleeing the city while others are most likely going into hiding. Now we, we hear this kind of thing and... Uh, we can be pretty emotionally detached. We, we think, well, that's history. You know, that happened a long time ago. What's it to me? Uh, I try to put myself in that city while folks are being hauled off to prison and the church is being terrorized. I imagine a married woman gathering her children around with tears in their eyes. And, and I see this woman with her children and they're afraid they're praying because dad has been hauled off to prison. Maybe they're wondering how God could allow this to happen to them. Dad had been so faithful. And as a family, they have been faithful. And I can imagine the thoughts they must have been tempted to have. Has God lost control? Does God have a plan for this horror? It is vital that we understand that God calls His disciples to a life of suffering. Today's prosperity preachers want you to believe that their Christian life is a flowery bed of ease. 
This preaching seems believable, but it doesn't fit the life of Jesus in the Scriptures. You you would be hard-pressed. Listen up now. You'd be hard-pressed to find a Bible character who did something great for God who did not greatly suffer in the process. Joseph was betrayed by his family. Moses felt constant rejection from those that he led. Daniel was thrown to the lions. Daniel's friends were thrown in a fiery furnace. Isaiah the prophet was sawed in half. Jeremiah uh, seeped into the mud of his prison cell and died in prison. And history tells us that 11 of the 12 apostles uh, uh, were murdered, brutally murdered, for their faith. And by the way, the 12th one they tried to murder, but God supernaturally kept alive, and that's John. God calls Christians to suffer persecution. Let me say that again. God calls Christians to suffer persecution. When it's your turn or my turn to suffer, we must resist the urge to question whether or not God is in control. Let me just say emphatically here, when it's your turn to suffer, God is still in control. He has not lost control. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, the Bible says, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What is a cross? What is a cross? Is it this cute golden thing we dangle around our neck, ladies? Or, you know, some silver plaque we hang on the wall in our home? Nothing wrong with that. What is a cross? You know what a cross is? It's a symbol of suffering, torture, and death. Isn't that what the cross meant for Jesus? He looked at his disciples and said, If you're not willing to bear your cross, you're not worthy to be called a disciple. Hey, that's, those aren't my words. Those are the words of Jesus. He said, To follow me means to suffer. And to suffer means to follow me. The two run together. The two run together. Why suffer? Why suffer? Because the suffering of one oftentimes brings about the salvaging of another. As we will see in the message this evening, the gospel enthusiastically left Jerusalem and made its way to every corner of the civilized world because the church of Jerusalem faced persecution. Just like you and I have been greatly helped as a result of the suffering of Jesus... Others can be greatly helped as a result of the suffering that God brings into your life. As Americans, we bubble wrap ourselves in convenience and comfort. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with conveniences. Nothing wrong with comfort. But it is wrong to be entitled. It is wrong to think that somehow we deserve to be convenient, to, to have convenience and to be comfortable. It is wrong to be entitled. It is wrong to expect it. It is wrong to question whether uh, uh, it is wrong to question God when it's our turn to suffer. Now I want you to understand this and understand this well. God spreads the gospel seed through the suffering of the saints. God spreads the gospel seed through the suffering of the saints. 
as we will see from Acts chapter 8 this evening, Satan stands behind the suffering. Satan is always on the attack. He seeks to attack the church, both from without and within. But God is greater than Satan, and He's able to take the suffering that Satan offers and turn it into the salvation of the masses. Let's look at three principal observations from Acts chapter 8 as we consider this truth. The gospel spreads as the church suffers. Point number one this evening, notice the suffering of the saints. The suffering of the saints. Let me encourage you to scribble the notes down this evening. The suffering of the saints. Look back with, at, with me at Acts chapter 8 and look at verse number 1. The Bible says, And Saul was consenting unto his death, speaking of Stephen, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were, uh, they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. That means he was a terrorist against the church, entering into every house and hauling men and women, committing them to prison. With the murder of Stephen, the religious establishment felt empowered to punish these followers of Jesus for their insurrection against Judaism. Saul felt justified in what he was doing. In his mind, these apostates, these Jewish apostates to the Torah and traditions had to be eliminated and exterminated. Many times we hear uh, this kind of uh, thing and it means little to us. Uh, but imagine if this persecution came to our church. Imagine, if you will, that uh, persecution began to rain down on our church. Imagine if you uh, received a text message or a phone call that one of our deacons had been killed for preaching his faith. Let's say it was Brother Owens goes out and he's arrested and he stands up and tells the judge how it is. And the judge has him drug out back and a firing squad takes him out. And boy, the hurt in your heart is we all love Brother Owens. That would uh, disturb us. And then the very next week you hear about Pastor Andrew being arrested and you hear about uh, Brother Vara uh, being taken out back and beaten and you hear about uh, one of the ladies in our church being hauled off to prison and boy you begin to think can I go to church Am I putting myself in danger if I go to church? Should, should we not just get up and move? Uh, do they have my name on a watch list? Are they monitoring me when I go to the grocery store, out to the market? Uh, uh, should we just pick up our family and move to a region where it's safe? This is exactly what this church went through. This is exactly the pain they went through. They suffered. They suffered. Uh, women were made widows. Men were made widowers. Children were made fatherless or motherless or possibly even orphaned. People were locked up in prison for just simply believing in Jesus. The church suffered. Number one, we see the suffering of the saints. Number two, notice the scattering of the seed. The scattering of the seed. Letter A, notice the plan of God. This was always the plan of God. Turn back to Acts chapter number one with me and look at verse number eight. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. Now again, the church had been very, very well established in Jerusalem. As I've said many times, the church had grown 
in size to be well into the thousands and even the tens of thousands. Conservatively, the church ran twenty to 30,000 people conservatively. Um, liberally, if you're counting, it was uh, well into the 100,000 range. The church was uh, massive, whatever number you want to attribute to it. It was well-established and well-oiled and growing and continuing to grow. And the Jewish uh, religious establishment was losing its power, but the church was becoming comfortable just sitting in Jerusalem. Look at Acts 1.8. The Bible says, Jesus is speaking here, but you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both. Notice that word both. Okay? Now, here they're standing on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is getting ready to ascend, and the church has not been established at all at this recording of this verse. Okay? And so here Jesus tells them, I'm going to go up into heaven, and when I do, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to indwell you, He's going to empower you, and then you're going to go out and enlighten others with the gospel, and when you do it, go both. Go both where? Look here, both in Jerusalem, notice the plurality of this, and in all Judea, that's the region, and in Samaria, that's the part of town that's undesirable, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So uh, God had been very clear, God had been very clear that he wanted them to go to beyond Jerusalem, outside the borders of Jerusalem, but up to this point in the book, the church has just sat in Jerusalem and had very little outreach outside of the city. Now, do you remember in Genesis chapter number 11 when God confounded the languages? Remember the story of the Tower of Babel? How many remember the story of the Tower of Babel this evening? Don't make me use some word I shouldn't use to get your attention. Amen? Uh, just be, uh, be with me. I don't want to have to throw funeral out in a way that is inappropriate another time. Brother Bob, I love you. Amen? And if you're watching tonight, I, I apologize for saying that. Um, in Genesis chapter 11, 11, God confounded the languages and... Um, um, uh, he scattered through that. He scattered the people all over the earth. Now, why uh, did God have to confound the languages? And the answer is simple. God told Noah and his children, go be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. They were supposed to have babies and move all over the place. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't move all over the place. They stayed right there, right there in that city right there next to where the ark had landed, right there in Turkey, or back then it would have been Macedonia, at least in the New Testament, Macedonia. They didn't want to leave. And uh, they built this metropolis. And then they built this tower. And God said, boy, they've got this thing figured out. I'm going to have to confound their languages. And you know what he did? He confounded their languages. And finally, after he confounded their languages, they obeyed the original commandment to move and spread out all over the earth. Now, I'm left with this question, and I don't like to dwell on hypotheticals, so I won't stay here long, but what if the church had been more aggressive in reaching Judea and Samaria and the uttermost? Would have God maybe spared the suffering of the saints? I don't know. There's no way we can know. But we know they were comfortable in Jerusalem, and God brought this this suffering, and through the suffering, boy, the disciples spread out. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 4. The Bible says, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Therefore. That word therefore means look out the verses prior. Well, what happened prior? The church suffered, and as a result, the seed spread, the plan of God. God used the suffering of his saints to get the gospel to Judea, 
and Samaria. Look at letter B. Notice the preaching of the gospel. The plan of God, the suffering caused the Christians to leave. And in their leaving, they were fervent in spreading the gospel. Look at verse number 5. Then Philip, this is one of the church's deacons, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Praise God for spirit-filled believers. You know, many of us in the, in the same situation would have left Jerusalem and left the faith all at once. Right? I mean, is God really in control? He, he's letting all these people suffer. Maybe I should just uh, relocate and, and restart my life. And the rationale for many would be, if God is not powerful enough to protect me from suffering, then why share him with anyone else? Philip understood that suffering was part of God's plan. And so he boldly proclaimed the death, burial, and resurrection to the people in Samaria. And the people listened intently. It was the plan of God to send Philip here through suffering. And he arrived in Samaria preaching and the people responded. Let her see. We see the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. Look at verse number 7 with me. Acts 8. The Bible says, For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies, and that were lame, were healed. And there was great joy in that city. What healed people... Uh, when Jesus ministered in Israel. Remember Jesus walking around and he's ministering and he's healing people? Remember blind Bartimaeus? Right? Remember the man uh, by the pool of Bethesda? You remember the man who Jesus spit in the ground and made the mud and put it on the man's eyes and told him to wash and, and, and be made whole and see? You remember all those stories? What was it that caused those people to be whole? You know what it was? It was their faith. It was their faith. You remember Jesus left Nazareth? And you remember what he said? He said, uh, when he left Nazareth, he said that he could not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. Now, Philip arrives in Samaria, and Philip is casting out demons, and he's healing people. You know why? Because the people in Samaria were people of faith. They just didn't know where to put their faith. And here Philip came in preaching Jesus. And these people were believing, and as a result of their believing, they were being made whole. The power of the gospel. God's power was felt through Philip. Now, Satan had had a stronghold on Samaria for centuries. And now God's power was on display through Philip. Unclean spirits are departing. The sick are being made whole. Satanic oppression is departing and heavenly joy is filling the city and the region. A revival is taking place in Samaria. The suffering of the church in Jerusalem brought about the spreading of the gospel seed in Samaria and now a revival has taken place. Number three, notice the sharing of the Spirit. The sharing of the Spirit. Look at Acts chapter 8 and look at verse number 14 with me. The Bible says... Uh, now when the apostles, were, which were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria uh, had, had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, 
prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. So let me give you an A, B, and a C here. Notice letter A, identification. Identification. Look back at verse uh, number, or rather look at, yeah, look back at verse number 17 with me. Look right there at the very beginning. It says, then laid they their hands on them. Laid they their hands on them. So what happens is Peter and, and, um, and, and John and the other apostles are there in Jerusalem and they're continuing the work in Jerusalem. Now I've heard some people speculate that the disciples were so anti-Samaritan and, and so uh, racist in their roots that they didn't want to go outside of Jerusalem. They didn't want to minister. I, I don't know that that's a fair uh, critique to make, but I do know this, that they didn't go, but they did send the deacons and the deacons went because of the suffering and here Philip is preaching and people are getting saved and people are getting baptized but the Holy Spirit of God has not descended in on them and not indwelled them and so uh, word gets back to the church and word uh, uh, Peter and John are sent by the church to Samaria and the Bible says that Peter and John laid their hands on the Samaritan believers and they received the Holy Ghost where do we get identification you remember back in Leviticus Leviticus chapter number 8, uh, with, the, with the sin offering, they'd bring a bullock and they'd bring it into the courtyard there of the tabernacle and they would tie it down to the four corners of that altar and, and then they would have the offender, the man, who, man or woman who had sinned, they would come and they would lay their hands on the head of that animal and the sin guilt would be transferred from the offender onto the animal and then the animal would be slain and would suffer in the place of the one who had been killed. Now watch this. When they put their hands on the animal, they were identifying with that animal and they were transferring guilt. Identification. Now, there had been a rift between the Samaritans and the Jews going back for centuries because to be a Samaritan meant that you were half Jew and half Assyrian. And so the Jews separated themselves and distanced themselves from the Samaritans. But watch this now. The power of Jesus is greater than any racial divide. Any racial divide. I love this morning. I looked out across our church family. And I say our church family because that's what we are. We're a family. And you know what I saw? I saw a great racial diversity in our auditorium. Put a great big smile on my heart. Boy, God's sending people from Bridgeport. And uh, God's sending people from Hispanic neighborhoods. We've had some Asian folks visit uh, in the last few months. And I see a diversity here. You know why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is greater than any racial divide. You know what the answer is? This country's race problems. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't need social gospel. We just need the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know, if you lived out the gospel of Jesus Christ and you genuinely love everyone God puts in your path and you... Uh, you set aside any racial uh, uh, prejudices that you were given at birth or you were raised with or taught. You set aside what the culture has taught you. You turn off Fox News and CNN and you just look at people for who they are and you love them for who they are and you give them the gospel and you tell them that Jesus loves them. You know what we find is that all of these racial things, they just don't matter anymore. They just don't matter. Oh, I'm not saying they don't matter to the world, 
But hey, when you get a group of people together and the gospel is being preached, none of that stuff matters. Peter and John are putting their hands on the Samaritans who they were raised and taught to hate and despise and not to fellowship with. John chapter 4, verse 4, the Bible says, uh, and he must needs go through Samaria. Jesus is coming up from the first Passover. He's going back to his hometown of uh, Capernaum. And normally the trip would take them around Samaria so they wouldn't, you know, spend money in Samaria and they wouldn't uh, finance their businesses and they wouldn't have anything to do with them. And, and, and the disciples were used their whole life to travel around Samaria, but Jesus went through Samaria. He went through Samaria. You know what he was saying is that these are people because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are to identify with. They laid their hands on the Samaritans. Let her be notice in dwelling. In dwelling. We're talking about the sharing of the Spirit. Look back at verse 17. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. They received the Holy Ghost. Now, a lot of people are confused by this and left to scratch their head. And, and let's not overcomplicate the Bible this evening. Romans 8 makes it abundantly clear that the Spirit is now received by all the moment of salvation. But here in the early church, God desired to have the hands laid on each group, each people group, as they began to get saved. We'll see something uh, similar uh, happen with the Gentiles in Cornelius a little bit later on in the book. But uh, here, this was important, that the Peter and John come and lay their hands on the Samaritans to heal the racial divide between the two and the church of Jerusalem to extend that out and say, you are part of us, you are one with us, identification indwelling. The Spirit of God came upon them when Peter and John did this. Let her see. Notice the word increase. Increase. Look with me at Acts chapter 8 and verse number 25. The Bible says, And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. This didn't just stop in the capital city of the region of Samaria. Boy, once this thing got going and the Spirit of God came down and landed on the Samaritans, then it began to spread and web out all over the region of Samaria. It's left the big city. It's finding its way into the rural areas. It's finding its way to every town and every village. The gospel of Jesus Christ is infectious. The gospel of Jesus Christ should increase as our lives are transformed. We turn around and share that life-changing experience with others, and they experience the same. Number one, the suffering of the saints. Number two, uh, we see uh, the, uh, the spreading of the gospel seed. Number three, we see the sharing of the Spirit. Number four, and lastly, let's look at the scheme of the sorcerer. The scheme of the sorcerer. Now, where God's at work, you can be guaranteed that Satan is at work. Satan doesn't just idly sit by and let God do his uh, work and, and, and see people saved and revival break out. Satan is right there scheming, trying to spoil the plot. This would be Satan's third attempt in the book of Acts to attack the church. Uh, you may remember how he tried to use money with Ananias and Sapphira. You remember that story? And you may remember how he tried to use murder uh, with having Stephen killed. Just last week we looked at that. Well, now he's going to try mimicry. He's going to try mimicry through the person of Simon Magus. Simon Magus. And so we're going to look at the story of Simon and how Satan is going to try to use Simon to stymie the church 
here in the book of Acts. Letter A, notice his conversion was bogus. His conversion was bogus. It was totally fake. He was a fraud. And uh, verses 9 through 12 don't seem to indicate that. But if you read the rest of the story a little bit later in the chapter, you realize that Simon was not really a born-again believer. He was faking it all along. Look at verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery, and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out uh, that himself was some great one. Now we read a moment ago how that, uh, that Philip cast out the demons, and he set people free. Well, where was this satanic oppression uh, coming from. It was coming from Simon. Simon had been there for decades, possibly, and he was doing witchcraft, and he was able to bewitch the people, if you will, and the people thought him to be some great one, verse 9 says. Look at verse 10. To whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. Who was Simon before Philip arrived? He was an anti Christ. Look at verse 11. And to him they had regard because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed, Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God uh, and, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. A surface reading of these verses, you read on down to verse 13, and it tells you that he actually... Um, uh, uh, Believed, It says he believed and was baptized. A surface reading of these verses would indicate that Simon became a true believer. But we'll see a little later on in this passage, Peter would cast serious doubt on the sincerity of his salvation. Now, I'll just add to this, um, um, uh, to this point in order to sort of beef up uh, some proof here. There's a whole bunch of historical literature uh, that circles around Simon Magus from Samaria. And uh, he has been credited by some for beginning the false teachings of Gnosticism. You say, well, what is Gnosticism? Well, that Gnosticism comes from the word Gnostis, which means to know. To know. And it's the idea that only certain ones who have the ability to understand and discern spiritually are able to be saved by Jesus. It's the beginnings of Calvinism really is what it is. Uh, but Gnosticism is a false religion and labeled very early on by the church fathers as an apostate teaching. And here, Simon Magus is credited, at least by many historians, of being the founder of it well after this event in Acts 8 takes place. Simon Magus was famous. No doubt when Peter arrived in Simon, he, uh, Samaria, he knew of Simon. There must have been some anticipation by Philip that Simon would cause him problems, and amazingly, he did not. With the church, Satan had tried the approach, if you can't beat them, kill them. Now he's going to try the approach, if you can't beat them, join them. The New Testament letters to the churches uh, warns multiple times of people who come in and pretend to be saved while being counterfeits, and phonies. Jesus promises one day to separate the wheat from the chaff. The wheat from the chaff. Hebrews talks about those who taste of salvation but end up in hell. Now, how does this happen? Like Simon, they understand the concept of salvation. They even publicly profess salvation, but they never truly get saved. His salvation, his conversion was bogus. Let her be noticed. His offer 
was blasphemous. Look at verse number 18. Verse number 18 of Acts chapter 8. The Bible says, And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. You remember the story of Judas? Judas saw Mary wash the feet of Jesus. And what did he try and do? He tried to quantify her worship of Jesus in dollars and cents. Remember what he said? This ointment could have been sold and, and, and given to the poor. And the Bible says he had no intent of that money being given to the poor. He was the one that kept the bag and had been, you know, stealing. What did Judas try to do? He tried to take worship of Jesus and quantify it in dollars and cents. Judas looked the part. He talked the part. He acted the part. In fact, when Jesus dipped the sop and gave it to Judas, the disciples were so blinded by Judas, they didn't believe it was actually him that could do this. Many have wondered and theorized what Jesus meant when he talked about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I won't claim that I... Uh, understand that completely, but I think it's safe to say that Simon, here in Acts 8, is barking up that tree, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Simon had made a living off of satanic powers that wooed crowds. Here he was trying to do the same thing with the power of Almighty God. What's he saying here? He's saying, hey, let me give you money and you give me the power to give folks the Holy Ghost. My friend, if that's not blaspheming the Holy Ghost, he's getting real, 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 real close. I'll just add this too. This is my opinion, and I'll state it that way. I don't think if Simon was saved, this is something the Spirit of God would have allowed him to say. I don't think this is something the Spirit of God would have allowed to come from his lips. The fact that he's trying to buy the power of distributing the Holy Ghost is proof to me he didn't have the Holy Ghost himself. What's he doing here? He's trying to mimic a Christian. I imagine Philip must have been joyed when Simon came to him and said, Hey, I want to believe. Man, you're talking about pulling a big fish in the boat. Simon was a big fish to pull in the boat. He was the most popular man in Samaria. And then Philip stood there and baptized him. Added him to the church. I just want to be clear here that just because you got quote-unquote saved and baptized, you better have made sure that salvation was real. You better have made sure you weren't doing it to win the approval of man or to take advantage of people. Letter A, we see his conversion was bogus. Letter B, his offer was blasphemous. Let her see. His problem was bitterness. His problem was bitterness. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 23. Peter speaking here. He says, For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness 
and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. Now, if Simon was sincere, he would have gone to God and prayed himself. But he didn't do that. He said to Peter, you, you go to God on my behalf. What was Simon's problem? He had an inward bitterness that drove his sinister behavior. What is it that sends a person to hell? It's unbelief. Unbelief. I had the joy of standing up here yesterday and performing the wedding ceremony of Tom and Tanya. Wonderful time. Beautiful ceremony. Beautiful couple. Handsome couple. Amen. She was beautiful. You were handsome, Tom. Amen. At least I was told you were handsome. All right. You know, I, I stood up here and I gave the gospel. There were a lot of people in the crowd who were hardened. Not everyone that was here enjoyed that part of the ceremony. In fact, I have a view most of you couldn't have. I'm looking at faces and I'm seeing a bunch of people who are like, okay, can we just get past this? Today I had the privilege of going to a birthday party for one of our church members and they had a bunch of family over who were Catholic. And I was asked to give the gospel in a public way, like a mini-sermon. And so I stood there in Spanish and I gave the gospel to these folks. They were not happy to hear what I had to say. Boy, they pushed back. They argued. They told me that being Catholic was the only way to be saved. What is it that causes people to reject the gospel? It's unbelief. Where does that unbelief come from? Can I tell you, oftentimes it comes from a heart of bitterness. A heart of bitterness. They're bitter over some set of circumstances. Not every case. Not every case. Sometimes they're just steeped in philosophy that would keep them from salvation. But oftentimes they're skeptical toward the message of salvation because life has hardened them. And they're bitter. We don't know why Simon... Magus was bitter. But we know from Peter's observation that he was trapped in bitterness and iniquity. Did Simon Magus repent? No. No. Instead of turning to God himself, he asked Peter to pray to God on his behalf. And please understand that you cannot have someone else pray you into heaven. Satan has tried to attack the church. And he had failed yet again. As American Christians, we are in desperate need of a shift in our mindset. Suffering for Jesus is not enjoyable at the first. But please understand, it is necessary for God's plan of salvation to more effectively spread. The suffering of the saints causes two things to happen. Number one, it causes the Christian to be purified. The Christian to be purified. We looked at that out of 1 Peter 1 today. The trial of your faith being more precious than that of gold. And you know, if suffering were to come upon this church and to come upon me and you, it would cause us to take a hard look in the spiritual mirror 
realize where we have some major imperfections and flaws. And boy, we would get our priorities of what really mattered in line. You know, all of a sudden, not getting a raise ceases to be important. All of a sudden, your sports team not winning a championship is no longer all that important. All of a sudden, things that are trite and trivial are put in line as being trite and trivial. Pastor, are you praying for the church to be persecuted? I'm not praying that directly, but can I just tell you that I don't think it would necessarily all be bad. Suffering of the saints causes the church to be purified. The second thing it does is it causes the Christian to become more passionate. These Christians suffered, and what did they do? They left. I don't have the numbers in front of me, and so I won't take a blind stab at them. I'll speak in generic terms so as to be fair. Many years ago, I read um, a story about Christians in North Korea. And I read that as the dictatorship squeezes down on Christianity, Christianity just multiplies and grows. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 again. Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. Are you bearing your cross this evening? Are you following Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Well, the message tonight really is simple as we look at this passage. We can expect Satan to attack. He always has. He always will. Christians, there's a gospel message that needs to go forth. And we need a church full of Philip. Men like Philip. We'll see next week that Philip's daughters were busy doing the same thing. Women, you're called to do it too. Not just for the men. We need Christians who will take the persecution of their faith and use it to make them more passionate. Let's pray. Lord, thank you tonight for the Bible. Thank you for the opportunity to go verse by verse through it. Thank you for the stories you put in there. Lord, help us to be passionate about our faith. Help us to be busy reaching our Judeas and Samarias and the uttermost. Lord, may you not have to send persecution for us to be busy doing those things. And yes, Lord, I'm praying for that corporately, but also for each of us individually. Lord, sometimes we get so caught up in our lives that we don't share the faith. We don't pass out a tract. We don't invite people to church. We don't witness because we're complacent, we're comfortable. Lord, may you not have to send persecution to us corporately or individually in order to get us to be passionate about the gospel. But Lord, when persecution comes, help us to know exactly how to handle it. Thank you, Lord, for these stories. And Lord, impress them to our hearts and help us to make applications. Spirit of God, work in each heart individually where is necessary. In Jesus' name.